This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. From the Hospice Chaplaincy Studios, this is the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, Season 2, Episode 1. I'm your host, Saul Alabama. And I'm Joe Newton. Good to be with everyone. Our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Andrew Goodhead, a chaplain at St. Christopher's Hospice. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you again. Yes, I've been reading your work on memorialization, and it's, it's quite an impressive work. But to begin us on that discussion, could you define it for us? Well, that's really interesting to define it. For me, memorialization is very much about um, the way in which people who are bereaved um, choose to remember those who have died. And um, memorialization, I think, can can take many forms if, in some ways, insofar as a memorial might be something which is a, a piece of stone set up as a headstone, which becomes a clear focal point for people um, who would then visit uh, and lay flowers at the graveside. Uh, a memorial might become something which is very much more personal, um, a watch or a piece of jewellery or something similar, which is given a particular um, importance in terms of legacy. Um, or, of course, memorialization uh, becomes the moment of being able to remember uh, and remember in very particular ways. And families and individuals choose to do that in lots of different ways. I'll, I'll give you a very simple um, example. When my grandmother died many, many years ago, um, uh, one of the things around the Christmas dinner table uh, that used to get set at the end of Christmas dinner was, that's another Christmas over. Um, mm. and, it, that, and that was relatively said because my grandmother every Christmas would say exactly those words. So it was a way of memorialising the fact, A, she wasn't there, but B, she was remembered. Um, and my my work in particular has focused on two areas. One is um, free writing, so the opportunity to write um, in bereavement in different times, whether you're invited to write something for a memorial service or whether you are able to come to a particular place to write without being invited, so you, you write slightly differently. Or, of course, to actually engage in some activity, uh, and that could be lighting a candle or receiving a plant or a flower. It could be some act of remembrance in which the person who has died is specifically remembered and you are memorialising either alone or with others. Mm. Um, so memorialization has a number of different forms, I think. So how is that, uh, I guess you would say, accomplished through the hospice, through St. Christopher's there? Do you have opportunities on a regular basis for uh, memorialization, we call, yeah. We do. Uh, We do have regular opportunities. We have them in a number of ways. Um, Even though we're in the midst of a a pandemic, well, let's say we're we're hopefully coming towards the end of uh, the the pandemic's major effect and and moving into another way of being for a while. Mm. Um, we We run a number of things across the year and also have a a place to which people can come. So I'll just explain both types. One is that every three months, 
I run um, a, a Thanksgiving, a memorial service, and the um, bereaved relatives of those who had died 12 months before in a three-month period are invited to come. Usually that's been a face-to-face -face service, and the highlight of it has been the reading of names and the lighting of candles, uh, with the invitation at the end of the service if somebody hasn't had a candle lit or would like to light their own candle, they can do that and spend time as family groups or as people together uh, remembering people who died. We've moved that online. So recently that's been an, uh, a Zoom event. And uh, while we've been able to read names and light a candle, we've not had the same interaction, the same mm -hmm. engagement, which I think is, uh, is missed. Um, every year we run with our fundraising department, our fundraising team, uh, events which are clearly memorial events. One in the summer, which is Remembering with Ribbons, and one which is a much bigger event towards Christmas, uh, just called Remembering with St. Christopher's. And again, in both of those, we engage people through an act of remembrance, a particular moment, uh, and that's usually with the lighting of lights on a tree, uh, mm. to remember somebody who has died. So that's very formal in a sense. Uh, it's it's sort of, we are doing this for you. You are participants in it, um, but we've organised it. The three monthly service, we invite maybe 500 people because that's wow. the number of names that we've got to write to of, of whom some will self-select to come mm -hmm. and others will select not to come. At um, Christmas, we have a huge mailing list of people who supported us for many years, some 50 years. So when we were doing this, that particular event in person uh, here at Sydenham in southeast London, we would have about 3,000 people present. Wow. Um, and that was amazing. It was fantastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and I hope for the day when we can go back to that because there's something about being together, the physical sharing together and seeing that you are with other people in, the, in that event, which matters. So there is there is a clear um, uh, difference between those two, intimacy and, uh, and broadness, I think. So what was the motivation for this project? Well, I've been interested in this before I came here, about, because I've done so many funerals, and I end up leaving a family behind after, at the end of a funeral and rarely got an opportunity to know much about what they did, um, unless I was asked to bury some ashes or to do a, a, a year's mind service or something similar to that, which wasn't all that common, but it happened. Um, and coming here, I recognised there was a real opportunity to do something uh, which would enable us to engage with what memorialisation means, particularly around partic bereavement theories of continuing bonds and um, the, the theory of, of, um, of restoration and grieving in bereavement, the dual process model. So when I came to St. Christopher's, we had a chapel on the ground floor and there was the opportunity to light candles, but there was no opportunity to write. So uh, I got a, a simple A4 flip chart and um, sticky notes and pens and left them out and, and just left them. Yeah. Um, no instruction as what what people could do, nothing at all. And all of a sudden, people started just writing on a note and sticking it on the flip chart. And it really quickly filled up. So from there, we uh, our arts team made us a, a papier-mâché tree and we we cut out leaves from paper and we started uh, letting people write leaves. And again, we needed uh, regularly to have an autumn because it was so full. We just got to the stage where we had to take leaves off. And you're saying you just left it out. You yeah. had those those things and all of a sudden people start writing on it. Yeah. You didn't have to kind of direct them? Nope. 
Not oh, at wow. all. We didn't leave any direction as to what people could do. And that's what makes it quite interesting, I think, that um, in the second piece of research, which I did um, through a project with the University of Hull, when I went around 10 um, hospices, some hospices have a thing which they might call a prayer request book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very clear that family members had seen their prayer request book and ignored the fact that it was to request prayers and, and wrote their memories of people who died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that was what they come for. They didn't yeah. want to write a prayer. Um, <laughs> I want you to. Um, I want you to remember my mum. So, so we had this piece of. So this is back in two thousand and five, two thousand and six. We had this piece of, of increasing information through these leaves, and at the same time, when we did our, our Thanksgiving and memorial services, we would send out with our invitations a green slip and invite people to write something on it if they wanted to and send it back to us. So one form of writing was by invitation, and one was completely uh, open, mm-hmm. free writing, if you like. And so I did a piece of, of research analysing both those types of memorials and what they said. And it was very clear that whilst there were similarities, there was difference between them, that in a sense... Um, uh, the free writing was much more open uh, and uh, much shorter, and the the chosen writing uh, would very often um, might choose a piece of poetry or might choose a, um, some words from a song or a simple line of "We love you, Dad," remembering you on today, that kind of thing. And so that was then published in Mortality in 2010. It took a while to get it published, um, but what I think was very clear was that. It, those two very modern um, understandings of bereavement theory were absolutely part and present of writing, that people could engage with grief, they could show that they were continually bound to the person who had died, and people who had died over a period of time, um, and also that they were able to um, engage with grief and be sad for a period of time, and clearly then move away from that and leave the pilgrim room or leave the service and be okay again. And uh, and it was okay to be sad, and it's okay to grieve because you mm-hmm. have this grieving and um, orientation uh, process going on. Now, did you um, find that in this process, uh, especially when people were writing, that uh, did you have the opportunity to talk to them and say and find out uh, how much it relieved them just to even to be able to write it down? No, we've never done that. That's okay. that would be something I'd like to do, particularly around. It's very. It's much more difficult to do that around the the the, the real clear free writing, less so around the writing which is um, invited to 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 bring mm-hmm. to give in. We could do that, um, and maybe that's the next step. Um, but I think it's quite possible to to draw out sort of themes from from the free writing, the very free free writing, uh, which clearly show that um, the connection with the deceased for those who come and do it, um, uh, and I recognise not everybody comes back to the hospice and does it, but people do it and they find it important to do. And I think people then find other ways to, to remember and memorialise. Um, there are a number of themes which, which they draw on uh, that clearly give them a sense of continuing the connection with the deceased and, and also continuing the connection with the, with the deceased in their living. Um, and there's a, a sociologist in the UK called Professor Tony Walter um, who has done some work around uh, the way in which um, a biography of someone who has died is created, that it's not a single one-off event that's written by the, the, the vicar or the pathologist or the police or the... Um, uh, uh, some some external person and then presented to the bereaved, but the bereaved draw on a number of sources 
to create their own narrative or biography of someone who has died. And that's what they then live with into the future. So when they come and write, they're remembering the person that they've created a biography or a narrative for. Mm -hmm. And that draws on uh, Robert Niemeyer's work, which I think is really interesting and exciting, where he talks about human beings being inveterate meaning makers. Um, and uh, that sim simple sentence that he, he, he wrote quite a while ago now, I think encapsulates what it is that we do when we memorialize. We are making meaning again mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, for someone who has died in the context of our living. Uh, to give you a really simple example, when I did the research uh, for the University of Hull project, I visited a hospice in the Midlands and the local football team at that point had become Premier League champions, football league mm -hmm. champions. And in Britain, this is a big thing. Mm -hmm. you know, it's a big deal. Um, and they were really the underdogs all the way through, but they managed to get themselves in the Premier League to the top. And it was hit, it was sort of hit and miss whether they would make it to uh, to be Premier League champions, but they did. Um, and when I visited this particular hospice after they had um, become Premier League champions, it was very clear that some people who had been bereaved ev um, evidently went back to the hospice to write in the memorial book to say hello to the person who had died mm. and to tell them <laughs> that the person that their team had become Premier League champions. And one of them had written, um, uh, uh, "XXX team um, have, have, have have are the champions." And then they wrote as an afterthought, but clearly an important afterthought. But then you already knew that. Awesome. You know, um, you'd have this information, wouldn't you? Because why wouldn't you know it? <laughs> yes. Um, and, and of course, people memorialize mm. in a very humanistic way. Oh, so their understanding of what the afterlife is, what heaven might be like, if you want to sort of put it in, into a place, is that it's very anthropomorphic. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you have drinks with friends. You go out on a speedboat. You're reunited with pets. Um, you have a good time. This is really a powerful meaning-making construct as I listen to you, especially this free writing. Mm. And uh, it looks like it's something we have to adopt and do more. To Here we have what we have here is um, when a patient dies, the family could write a card to the hospice. Yes. And uh, they also try to memorialize that way. But I like this concept of free writing. Yeah. This is a constant thing for some people, that they will come back year on year. So they might come back for a birthday or for Christmas or for Valentine's Day or some anniversary or other, maybe the anniversary of death, uh, to remember somebody who has died. And, and I think that's offering that opportunity for people to be able to find a space and a safe space to do that um, matters because... We live in a society which really doesn't like to talk about a bereavement. So after a couple of weeks, if you are bereaved, everything becomes hushed tones. And, you know, we, we, we really don't want you to talk about your bereavement. So if we were able to offer a space in which people can remember and remember openly, then surely we're offering something which matters to people. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's to me, has, has traction. A little bit of a historical question here, uh, Andrew, is about... How, I mean, it sounds like this has been something that has been, the, by this, the, the, the free writing, the memorialization, the whole thing has been growing over the years. When did you kind of feel, the, finally, the hospice there, or how long has it been that it really has been a focus? I mean, I, I tend to think that we here in the States kind of downplay it. 
and oh, don't okay. take it as seriously yeah. as it sounds like you are. And that's what troubles me. Yeah. We've offered it here since I've been at St. Christopher's, so that's 16 years. Um, and um, we recognize its value. We recognize the worth of what people have written. So anything that is written in, the, in what we now call our memories book, and we have them specially made as large um, hardback books with, with plain paper in that people can write on, put cards in, children can draw in and all kinds of, of things. We then keep them in our uh, pilgrim room, which is the space that people can visit, um, for people to go back to. So some right. families will go back to a book that they wrote mm -hmm. in previously and write in the same one. Um, and they'll sort of pick up a page as being their page. Um, and that's great. I guess that's amazing. Right. Others will just really write in the in the book that's that they come to, and you know. And as you'd expect, the most common things that people write, the when when um, uh, themes are analysed, are two things. One is we love you. The second is we miss you. Yeah. Um, and they're always in the present tense, um, and uh, and that's important. And the other thing of, to 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 um, to hold on to is there's an element of of mimesis. So people will look at what other people have written, and sometimes they will write something similar. Mm. Um, now I don't think they're deliberately copying somebody else. What I think to an extent goes on is that they don't quite know how to write. Therefore, let's see what somebody else has done, so I know or have an idea of what to write. Mm. Um, and that does you do see some of that. Could it yeah. also be that someone write, reads something? And it reminds them of the same thing that they forgot to put down? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll take a little break again, but let me reintroduce you. Our guest is the Reverend Dr. Andrew Goodhead, who is a chaplain at St. Christopher's Hospice in London. We'll be right back. We've been waiting, waiting for COVID-19 vaccines to be developed. Now, waiting for them to get to us. But you can do more than wait. You have powerful ways to help slow the spread right now and protect your family and loved ones, too. Here's how. Watch your distance. Stay at least six feet away from folks you don't live with. It's risky to be indoors with them, too. And, of course, avoid crowds. Also, wear a mask. CDC reports masks protect the people who wear them and folks around them. And wash your hands using soap and water for 20 seconds. And do it frequently. Vaccines won't make COVID go away overnight, but they give us a real chance to finally overcome it. As long as we keep watching our distance, wearing our masks, and washing our hands. Learn more about vaccines at cdc.gov coronavirus. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We are continuing our conversation with the Reverend Dr. Andrew Goodhead. Uh, uh, could you talk to us about the interface between public and private grief rituals, especially with this concept of free writing? Because they know people are going to read it. It's their private grief. Mm. But they also know people are going to read it, like you're going to share some examples with us. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's a really interesting point around the, the, the public stroke private um, writing, because people do come to the hospice to write privately, but they're clearly faced when they look at the book with the fact that other people have written before them and will therefore look at what they've written. Um, and I do know that people will come and they will, and they do spend a bit of time just flicking back through the pages that have gone before. But, but I think there's no sense of being embarrassed by the fact of, of what you have written being read by, some, read by somebody else, because mm -hmm. what you're reading from other people is, is the same experience. 
um, and uh, you therefore recognize that there's a quasi-public element to it, but you know that the person who's going to come and read it will will understand and empathize with your experience um, rather than anything else. So um, uh, a piece from my first, uh, I've, I've got a couple of pieces I'll read, a, a piece from my first um, uh, research that was published in 2010, um, this is this is a, a not long, but it's um, quite long. But you'll you'll get a, an understanding of of quite how um, people want to place someone who has died. Um, they want to uh, talk about re, re, reunion with those who've died and all that all those sort of broad themes. So. Um, uh, you passed over to a special place where you can kiss my grandma's face, reunited with dad at last, up on some distant cloud with mum and other good company. My lovely mum, dad and brother, reunited in heaven. Sleep now, Nan, as granddad is waiting for you. I know I will be with you again someday. We shall meet again someday, never to part again. Hmm. Until we meet again, we shall be together again with God. So there's a sense for that individual who who is longing for reunion, clearly grieving and longing for reunion, pining mm. for the person who's who's died, but also of course missing other people who've died before as well, and recognising those bereavements, um, and and um, if you like experiencing them uh, again in mm. that moment of writing. Um, as I was uh, looking through your uh, all your work here, Andrew, there was yes. a sentence that I wrote down that I found very, I mean, and, and I think it ties in well to what you were just talking about with that comment. Uh, and the, the, the statement was, a, ta a task of bereavement is the renewal of the narrative of living. Mm. And yeah. I'm not sure if you wrote that or somebody else wrote that, but I, I mean, that tripped a trigger in me to remind folks that, uh, you know, we run into folks, of course, who have a significant difficult time going through their bereavement. And this is what, you know, hopefully that they're recognizing that they still need to live. Yes. And I yes. see that with what you were, what you just said about the family and how they know they're going to be back together and all that. That's then preparing themselves to get ready to get back to work, to, to living, I guess you would say. I think so. People, I think this, you know, this is this is this is my own consideration. But I, I think people, a man or a woman, young or old, when they come to write and they and they write something as extensive as that about a number of people that have died, clearly there's an element in which they are feeling bereft because it's significant bereavements sure. that have gone on for them, uh -huh. um, and there is also a hope for reunion. So there's a sense of in the here and now, this is how it is. It's yes. rough. It but in the tough. future, I know I will be with you. Um, and that, and when we are together again, there's no second parting. But the individual who wrote that would have walked away and gone back to life. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I purpose. think, is an important element of it, that you're able to connect with grief and with grieving, a very present grief in the death of a grandmother, but also um, historic grief, if you like, or historic bereavement in the death of other family members. And um, uh, to be able to do that is a way of making meaning of your life now. So meaning making and meaning taking, mm. you know, a lot mm -hmm. of the stuff that uh, mm -hmm. Nehemiah and others would talk about. Um, uh, and it enables people to carry on in life because 
being able, offering the opportunity like this to write means that we're giving people a space where they can remember and they don't have to hold it all inside mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and not be able to talk about it so um uh, you know those because those things i think for us as inveterate meaning makers it matters uh, and one of the tasks that we must surely have in bereavement as in enabling someone who is coming towards the end of their life to make meaning of that part of their life mm-hmm. and for the for the family to make meaning of somebody's dying is to enable them to make meaning for the future. Mm. Uh, and again, this is, I think, where Tony Walters done some work about the way in which people seek to, to make meaning. So he did a really interesting piece of work around those that go to visit um, uh, spiritualists or mediums. Um, and, and the desire of those that go to visit them, of course, is they want to know the person who's died is all right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I can go on living if I know you're fine. Tell yeah. me mum's okay. Tell me that she loves me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and those are the things that I think give connection and continue connection. And it's why when we come to the um, Thanksgiving and memorial services that um, we run, um, we offer the space for an act of remembrance. Because within that, we're specifically saying your bereavement matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and regardless of how disengaged people have been through 10, 15, 20 minutes of a Thanksgiving memorial service, when it comes to an act of remembrance, they take control. Mm. Um, and they really engage with it. I like the, um, piece, I like the piece you read because um, there's also that sense of eternity as a meaning-making construct. I mean, we will live together forever. Yeah. Yeah, and, and of course that's also present in the in the here and now for many people who talk about somebody who has deceased um, watching over me, being with me. Mm. Uh, and it was not uncommon to to read that, you know, I'm sorry that you weren't able to come to my wedding. It was a lovely day, but I know that you were there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or we've moved house and I know that you've been with us. Um, so they hold those connections by creating sort of the space in which the deceased are present with the living and he, even though they've they've no way of showing that the um uh, that the deceased have you know were at the wedding or have seen the new house they do it by the fact of i'm telling you i know you were there mm. they hold that connection they hold it very tightly mm. when my when my father died i uh, we were sitting around the or sitting standing around his bed as he was taking his last breaths and, one, you know, telling him we were all there supporting him and all that. And one of the things that I said to him, uh, I said, don't worry, Dad, I'll take care of Mom. I'll take care. I'll watch her. I'll take care of it. And to this day, which has been over 10 years ago, uh, you know, it's happened, and it's a reminder, and it's there, and uh, it helps. It certainly helped me in my bereavement. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things, too, I, I I'm... I think is is interesting is is the way in which we draw people in at particular times. I mentioned the um, the sort of the, the, the sentence which my grandmother would would say, but there was another piece of writing that somebody put in in a, in a book from one of the hospices I studied, which says Christmas is a special time of year. I know you enjoyed putting up the decorations and lights, and we are carrying on the tradition. Wherever you are, I know you will be looking down on us. Mm. Um, you know, and I think there's something about that. I mean, clearly there's somebody who's saying, I'm not quite sure what your location is, but. <laughs> 
but you know wherever it is you're looking down at us but they're they're saying that you know continuing this mm. um uh, which you used to enjoy doing means we're continuing a bond with you mm-hmm. we're continuing this, this this means so much to us mm. um and again that makes meaning it helps people make meaning through a difficult period um and one of the reasons that we do a large memorial service uh before christmas is that we know that there are lots of festivals of light of different kinds from different faith traditions which come around christmas and uh um uh, over that sort of month or six weeks but actually for for many families it's a difficult time because it's the one time of year when usually unlike last christmas people would would come together and be gathered together uh-huh. even though Probably in the event there will be lots of rubbing people up the wrong way, there will be lots of aggravation, there will be lots of sort of tension, <laughs> you know, all those things, you know, uh, that, that make uh, coming together in an unusual situation what it is. Mm-hmm. But this is what we do. Um, exactly. And you not being here doesn't mean we don't continue the things that you did. I've got uh, a question. I'm sorry, Saul. Let me. Uh, uh, how do you approach your families prior to death? about bereavement, like a pre-bereavement, pre-grief? I think it happens in a number of ways here. Um, one is that it's we try to make it as natural a part of conversation as possible. Okay. So we will talk about the fact that we've got a bereavement service. We've got a children's bereavement service as well as an adult bereavement service. And um, we will talk about the fact, actually, you could have a referral into that service if you would like it um and um or if you need it and we will contact you and you can come to a bereavement event and from there you might want to um have some one-to-one support or go to a group or find some other way Uh, so we do some signposting um but alongside all of that i think of the informal conversations um about the way in which so so for example if i was with somebody uh, at uh, at the patient's bedside and the patient was coming to the end of their life in the last hours of life i will always engage the families to say tell me about your mum um (laughs) and um uh what were the things that she enjoyed doing Mm -hmm. um how do you remember her rather than saying this is a terribly sad time your mum looks very ill it's got to be minutes isn't it we'll just stand here in silence and watch her breathe um because actually what what you need to be doing is is engaging with people because those things i think for those who will become bereaved are the things they want to remember and so you're beginning to enable them to think actually there are lots of things about my mum's life which i want to recall um we should be making the opportunity for people to say thank you sorry and goodbye because those also enable bereavement to be better yes um to have an ending a proper ending if that's possible our guest again is the reverend dr andrew goodhead i will be right back after this break if someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support please call the national alliance for mental illness helpline It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. This is Saul Berman. you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We are continuing our conversation with the Reverend Dr. Andrew Goodhead. Um, Andrew, a few days ago, I was invited to go and do, um, to a family that was grieving, there was a death. And um, 
the son of the deceased held on to his poker shirt and said, this is mine. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the power of objects in memorialization. Well, that's a really interesting question. I, I think objects do have a, a, a significance. And uh, they have a significance because there's a sense of legacy. So it might well be that someone has specifically given or left something to somebody. So I have a watch which was left to me by a, a family member, which I think is really important to me um, uh, because of who it belonged to and, and what it means. Um, so I think those I think objects really do matter, particularly in the first period of bereavement because that keeps you close to somebody so the the bereaved husband or wife who can't um, dispose of somebody's clothes because they are a sign of somebody uh-huh. being present or somebody's life um, and while the rest of the family might be saying you know you need to you need to give these to a charity shop you need to give these to a charity shop for the person who's bereaved actually they still have a significance um, and they'll they'll be let go of at the right time in the right way uh, so events become so objects become very significant and um those things i think um matter probably only for i'm tempted to say only for a generation um in that uh, if you if you have antiques roadshow in america uh, and i know that you do um you will have lots of families who turn up and say well of course uh, this was left to my mother by my grandmother um, and my mother had it in her house for 40 years. Uh, I've brought it today because it's a re- the ugliest thing I know, and I really <laughs> want to get rid of it. Um, so it doesn't have the same significance. Um, but it might have been for that person's mother a sign or a symbol of, of something that, that mattered hugely to the um, to the grandmother. It's not just about changing taste that, you know, this particular sort of object we know li- don't like anymore. It's about, oh, it just doesn't mean anything to me because the, I have no connection with the person who left it to me. Um, so I think objects do have significance, and the shirt would have clearly had exactly that, possibly because it smelt a bit of that person's relative, uh, because it was something they saw them wear regularly, um, because it was something they might have enjoyed doing together if they played poker. You know, all of the things that that, that become sort of embedded or imbued within an object. Um, and, and I think the same happens at our at Thanksgiving memorial services. Some of the services that I visited across the UK, they would hand out a flower or a stone or a piece of paper or something that you could write on. And you could see that that families took really great care of them and gave them a a great deal of reverence because they symbolised somebody. They weren't just a stone. They weren't just a potted plant. They weren't just a candle. It reminds me of my, this 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 is about my relative. This is about the person I've come to remember. And that's why that in that act of remembrance, there was such a sense of of importance to the to the moment for people. Mm. And also beyond objects, um, on the opportunity you provide, there are also poems. And I want to invite in our resident poet Alexandra Donovan to also jive in here. Uh, the role of poems uh, in 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 memorialization. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Goodhead. This is. I'm enjoying this so thoroughly. It strikes me as I think about my own experience and my experience with the bereaved that writing can often become the linking object, Mm. the the item that you create, whether it's in a memorial book or something that you keep for yourself, becomes a linking object. And the story itself might become the linking object if we no longer have that item. And really, the item itself is about the story. So I'm, I'm fascinated to make that connection this morning for the first time with you speaking to us. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I think uh, connection is what it's all about. That's how you make meaning. It is that you connect one thing to another. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, I, I think we do it in all kinds of circumstances. And, you know, we do it throughout through the entirety of our life. Um, and, and in bereavement, we do it, but we do it we do it to hold on to, in a healthy way, hopefully, the person who has died. Um, so objects can give meaning to the life, to, to the person. Objects can remind us of the person. Um, objects can be a symbol of, of, uh, of all kinds of things. Um, uh, and I, and I, I absolutely take what you say, that, you know, if we are inveterate meaning makers, which, which I, I really believe that we are, mm. um, then we... Then we don't just have meaning which we think about. It's not just about. It's not just a, a cerebral thing. It's something which is a heart event too, and the heart event it very often is not just expressing "I love you" and "I miss you." It can be when somebody comes into the house in a family and says, "Oh, I like that picture on the wall." A person will say, "Well, my father bought that and they left it to me." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a heart event rather than mm-hmm. a cerebral thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if, if you will, I've, um, this reminds me, I don't normally interject my own poetry in situations, but I have a poem that I wrote about a linking object that I lost and I felt compelled to then write a poem to memorialize the loss of the object that linked me to my mom. So I can read this one for us. Yes, please. So, the Summer Night, after a poem by Mary Oliver. I lost your blue lapis earring by the side of the road, somewhere in Portland, Maine. Forgive me, mother, I was drunk and full of laughter, and my jean pockets were slim and tight, so when I tucked it in after the first time it fell along the glittering boardwalk, it must have just slipped right back out again. And tell me, what else should I have done, or should I have contained this blue and skittering life you left to me? Oh, wow. Powerful. Wow, thank you. You're welcome. The, the item of the, the blue earring became symbolic of so much more than this blue earring, as it always is, right? It became about the legacy of life that was left to me and not left to be held and kept like a shrine, but left to be lived. And so it, the process of writing this poem helped me to, as we were talking about that balance between mourning and living, it helped me to do the work of mourning so that I might get on with that blue skittering life that is actually, that is the linking object, is the life itself that has been left to me. Yeah. Dr. Goodhead? No, I absolutely, there are no words, I think. That's, it speaks volumes for itself. It's absolutely. a beautiful poem. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, legacies is something which we really need to, um, to give time and, and effort to, to think about for people who are likely to be bereaved or are bereaved. You know, what is it? Are the things that, that you find that you've been left that matter to you, which are legacies of the person who has died? And um, as part of the University of Hull work, which was a bigger project, one of the um, strands of study was around um, Re- Remembrance Sunday um, when the country remembers those who have died in conflict, in, in battle. So generally, uh, it remembers uh, servicemen and women rather than civilians who, who died. But they are also drawn in somehow. And I think very often when you are trying to remember people whose lives, some would argue, were wasted because they were young lives that were lost on the battlefield or, um, and in other ways, um, the legacy isn't simply about an individual. It's about the whole 
um, and the whole is the nation. Um, uh, and um, I have a view that I think at this point in, in the UK's history, we need to let go of somehow of the Second World War and, and look to the future rather than sort of constantly um, placing our um, our ourselves in, in you know in 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 the in the shadow of it, um, but you know when we when we have something like Remembrance Day, which is which is a, which is a national day of mourning for people who died in the war, with the legacy is not for an individual necessarily, but it's for um, all those who died, whose legacy has to be remembered collectively. So we do we do it in, in a number of ways, and I think collective memorial memorialization is just as important. A funeral, if you like, is collective memorialization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and in the UK at the moment, because funeral numbers are so small, down to fifteen or a maximum of thirty people at a funeral service, the opportunity to do that immediate memorialization in the days after a death is lost for many many people. Um, and they're not able to be present to do that bit of what they call paying their respects. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's more than that. It's about enabling them to begin the process of how do I, how do I move this person from alive to dead? So the act of the funeral, in some sense, is about that moment of moving them from life to death properly. When I press the button and the and the cremator or the the coffin disappears downwards or the curtains come around, that moment um, enables people then I think to really begin to recognise. Okay, now the next bit begins, and that's memorialising. So you go off to the pub or some uh, event, some place where there's a, um, a a gathering, and you then talk about them in the past tense. I remember when, mm-hmm. or I worked with. Um, so you you begin that process. It changes. I did a similar thing like that when uh, my grandmother died many, many years ago. And uh, we all went out to Maine where we gathered and I got to participate in her funeral and then went to bury her. And then on the way back, my sister, my two sisters and my brother and I, we stopped on a roadside card shop. And this was a cathartic experience as we were dealing with our grandmother's death and we were in the card shop just in fits of laughter as we looked at these cards. And and we still talk about that this day as such a cathartic healing time to be able to be together, to share this time. And we remember it so fondly and wonderfully that it's a it's a terrific reminder of our grandmother and the life that she gave us and the experiences and the love, all of those good things that we get from these type of things. And... Uh, you know, it's it, those are little things that we need to, as you say, you know, drop off at the pub, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can I ask you a question? Another question here, Andrew. Uh, you have not spoken of your staff. How do you? Yeah. How does that? Do you do a uh, uh, free writing with the staff as well? Uh, we don't. We know that f- some staff will free write themselves. They'll go to the pilgrim room, write in the memories book. Um, they will do that, um, and that's absolutely fine because we the, the book is available for everyone to use. Anyone sure. can write in it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think allowing that opportunity means that people have the sense that they can just go and do it if they want to do it. There's no sense at all that they are um, uh, frog marched into writing. So it, yeah. be- it doesn't yeah. become free writing. It becomes a little bit forced. Yes. What we do for staff here is interesting and rather different. Uh, If a staff member dies, we um, run a very simple thing called a time to remember, and we'll usually do that within 
48, 72 hours of a death. Mm. Um, and it, we offer anyone the opportunity to gather together uh, to share their memories, their verbal memories of the person who has died, uh, so that we have a chance to together to gather and if we're not mourning the death, which in a sense we are, but not formally at that point because we're just doing something very informally but uh, in gathering, we allow ourselves the time to recognise something significant has happened. Mm -hmm. And that recognition matters. Um, so we would allow, um, you know, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, and I would start it off with some simple words and then only ever say from that. And of course, now um, the opportunity is there for everybody to say whatever they would like, just to sort of share their memories. And after some sort of faltering starts, a bit of sort of, well, oh, I don't know what to say, um, <laughs> people then tend to share short things mm -hmm. um, about the person who has died, who was a staff member. And we then end very briefly and simply, and people go back to their work. But unless we take people out and give them the chance to remember as in, in that way, we're not recognizing that something significant has happened. That's not always healthy. No. And uh, does that go along with the patients that they, they care for? Uh, by that, I mean, if you have a, I know that there are many patients that I remember, like right from the drop of my hat, mm. and uh, that have touched my life. Yes, it can for some patients. Yeah. Um, I think on the wards, our care of patients can be quite short Yes. Um, uh, in terms of time. Um, but there are some patients, of course, who will touch staff very deeply. And those events for, um, for, for, for the staff, when it comes to those, they will find their own way of remembering. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. And they do that quite successfully. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So what are your final thoughts? Uh... Oh, <laughs> always remember... People are inveterate meaning makers. I think, I, mm -hmm. I, I know I, I come back to that phrase so often, but Robert Nehemiah is absolutely right. It's such a simple phrase, but it's so heavily filled with meaning in itself that we need to give people the space and time to make meaning of something which has happened. Um, we give them space and time to make meaning of finding a new job or moving into a new house or getting married. But so we need to allow that in the period of bereavement when things are, are perhaps most difficult for them and to make that a continuing ongoing experience and opportunity. The space is there, the room is there, the book is there. Um, and you can come back to it time and time again, or you can go into it only once, uh, but you know that you're able to come back. Powerful. I will now invite our resident poet, Alexandra Donovan, to conclude this uh, recording with uh, a poem. I'm excited to read a poem by Jen Richardson. It's from her book, The Cure for Sorrow, a book of blessings for time of, times of grief. And it's just a beautiful example, I think, of the poem as a locus of that meaning-making, as a way to move from memorializing to creating the story that we live with. So this is a poem she wrote for her husband, Garrison Doles, in 2013. And talk about the interface between private and public. This, is now, this has now become a blessing for others. Mm. This is called Where Your Song Begins Again. Beloved, I could not bear it if this blessing ended with the final beat of your heart. If it left with the last breath that bore you away from here. I could not stand the silence, the stillness, where all had once been song had been story, had been the cadenced liturgy of your life. So let it be that this blessing will abide in the pulse that moves us from this moment 
to the next. Let it be that you will breathe in us here bereft, but beloved still. Let it be that you will make your home in the chamber of our heart, where your story does not cease, where your words take flesh anew, where your song begins again. Oh. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, yes, thank you. Uh, Alexandra, thank you, uh, Dr. Goodhead. Oh, thank you. For joining us on this episode. was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.